Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 13. You've all heard the statement, freedom isn't free. There's a price tag on it, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Let me just give you a little bit of a historical context about what's going on in Galatians. Lord willing, we'll be done with Galatians next week, the end of November, and then we'll begin in January, I mean begin in uh, December uh, in the book of Genesis. So just to let you know what's coming up. Uh, at this point in time in Galatians 5, uh, several years before this time, about 44, 45 B.C., I mean A.D., Paul and Barnabas have planted four or five churches in the region of Galatia, the peninsula, modern-day Turkey. They left uh, to go back to Antioch, Syria and Antioch, and uh, Jews came from Jerusalem and began to teach the Galatian believers that Paul had misled them. Paul had actually lied to them. Paul had taught these Galatians that you were saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And these so-called Judaizers, these Jewish folks from Jerusalem, had said that Christ's payment for your sins was insufficient. It wasn't enough that Christ had died for your sins. Simply trusting in Christ alone would not give you a right relationship with God. You had to keep the Mosaic law. You had to become circumcised and you had to... Uh, follow all these ceremonies and rituals, etc. So Paul writes the book of Galatians to defend salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and to defend his apostleship. Now we throw these words around. Let me just help you give you a little understanding. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. God's grace is the gift of eternal life that he offered us through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That's God's part. Faith is our part. Faith is our acceptance of God's gift. Y'all are entering the Christmas season. And for the gift-giving process to work, two things have to happen, right? You give the gift and they receive the gift. They accept the gift. Well, grace is God Unmerited favor, we don't deserve it, giving us the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Faith is our believing that Jesus Christ paid for our sins, putting our full trust, our full weight on that, and receiving that gift. Nothing we can do to add to that. God finished that on the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, the second of the last words he said were, Tetelestai, which is Greek, means it is finished, which means paid in full. That was the second to the last words he said. Your sin debt, my sin debt, has been paid in full and there's nothing that can be added to it. No human goodness or behavior can be added to that. We have been set free from slavery to sin because Christ paid our sin debt. Not only has our penalty been paid for sin, but we all have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself come to live in us to give us the power to overcome sin. Now the Judaizers, they came to these Galatian believers and they said, no, 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 no. It's all good that Christ died for your sins, but you've got to keep the law. You have to behave yourself in order to earn God's favor. And by the way, in order to restrain sin, we got to have these rules. Well, if you looked at the Roman Empire back in that era, sexual sin was just out of control. Someone wrote that this age, first century Rome, was an age where shame seems to have vanished from the earth. Does that sound like us? Is there any shame? Demosthenes writes, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately, 
and have a trustworthy guardian for our homes. The number of children born illegitimately in our culture is now a majority. Seneca writes, and this is heartbreaking, chastity is simply proof of ugliness. Innocence is not rare, it is now non-existent. That's the culture in which these Galatian believers are living. And these Jewish legalists came to this series of churches and they said, you got to impose the law on them. You have to impose the do's and don'ts or sin will be completely out of control. And of course, many believe that today as well. The solution to evil behavior is really simple. Pass another law. Just pass another law and forbid some more behavior. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. Of course, you and I know that forbidding behavior by passing a law never stopped anybody from doing it because the law cannot change the human heart. You can pass all the laws in the world, but it doesn't change the human heart. Only the gospel can do that. Now, we talk about Paul teaching that we are free from the law. It doesn't mean that Paul says God's law has no value because the law of God reveals the character of God. When God says, have no other gods before me, he's telling us that he alone is worthy of worship. When God says, you shall not murder, he's telling us, I'm the author of life and life is infinitely valuable to me. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, also reveal the standard by which God judges humanity. So when we compare these, these, this law of God, the perfect moral standard of God, and we compare that to our sinful behavior, is there a bit of a gap between what God expects and how we perform? Would you say that gap is fairly wide? Grand Canyon wide, maybe, right? Not small. So God's law is, among other things, diagnostic. It reveals our sin problem, but it doesn't provide the solution. See, the Jewish solution was God's law is God's standards. If you want to be right with God, just keep the law. All of it. Every day. 24-7, 365. And everybody knows that solution won't work because no one can keep the law because we all break it. People may say, well, you know, Brad, and I've heard this, I, I'm okay. I've never committed murder, right? Jesus said, if you've ever been angry with anybody, it's the same as murder. So keeping God's law is not just about actions, right? It's about motives, and it's about our thought life. And of course, on that scale, everyone fails. God gave us the law to diagnose our sin, to tell us what his standards were, and to show us that we need a savior. You know, how many of you would go to a medical doctor and the doctor says, you are in perfect health, but I'm gonna prescribe a treatment regimen. You would say, well, doc, hold on, there's, there's nothing wrong. Why do we need a treatment regimen? I mean, you, there has to be something we have to fix before I'm gonna start treatment of some kind. God's law is the diagnostic tool that says, you got a problem. You're not living up to God's standards and therefore something has to be done. And that's what Paul says. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. So the law can't make us right with God because none of us can keep the law. So we have a problem. We don't have the solution. God did. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Paul is telling these Galatian believers, I know the Judaizers are telling you that you just keep the law and you'll be right with God, but none of us have ever kept the law. That's why God sent his son Jesus, who did keep the law perfectly, to set us free by paying our sin debt and conquering sin and death. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 5, verse 13. Paul says to these Galatians, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Here's the principle. God gave us liberty from the law, not as a license to sin, but as an opportunity to serve others out of love. God gave us liberty from the law, not as a license to sin, but as an opportunity to serve others out of love. Now, we've mentioned this before. The central problem of human existence is how sinful humanity can have a relationship with holy God. Because our sin misses the mark, as you know, of God's perfect standard of holiness, and that separates us from God. And for us to have a relationship with God, our sins need to be dealt with. The Judaizers said, you can have a relationship with God, you just need to keep a list of rules called the law. Let me explain. Law-keeping is attempting to be righteous by works. I keep the law as a means of being right with God, right? I'm depending on my work to earn God's favor instead of depending on Christ's finished work that has already earned God's favor. So law is this external force, right? Law is an external force that kind of pushes people um, into conformity with its dictates. If you disobey the law, how many of you ever disobeyed the law? Okay, right? Were there consequences? Were there consequences? So it might have changed your behavior, but did it take the desire to sin out of your heart? I've gotten multiple speeding tickets. <laughs> but not in a few years. It's been, it's been a while. You know something? Unfortunately, it hasn't slowed me down. <laughs> True confession. So even though there's negative consequences, it doesn't change the human heart. And that's what Paul is saying. You can have consequences, but it won't change the human heart. The reality is most, many, many Christians like the do's and don'ts. They like a list of rules. Just tell me what to do and what not to do, and I keep the rules. And they think that that's how they have a relationship with God. It's a rule-based relationship. Just follow the rules. You do, it's kind of a contract. God, I'll do my end by keeping the rules, and you do your end and stamp your approval on those, my rule-keeping, and everything's good. So that's trying to be, have a right relationship with God by law. And if your children tried to have a relationship with you like that, it would break your heart. Mom, Dad, just, just give me the rules. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want to know what the rules are. I want to stay on your good side, right? So you give me the goodies. So I'll keep the rules. I may or may not love you, but I'll obey you because I don't want to get whacked. Now, if your children treated you like that, it would, it would break your heart. But that's what a legal relationship with God looks like. Just a contract. On the other extreme, Paul says you've been set free from the law, but you've not been set free to sin. And that is license. So you have legalism on one end, all the rules. You have license on the other end, no rules, right? License is human righteousness without works. It means, license literally means without restraint. Without restraint. Rejection of any rules. And that's, of course, our culture today. No one tells me what to do. I make my own rules. So if someone believes they have license, freedom in Christ means freedom to sin. Because after all, it's already been paid for, right? I mean, he already paid for all my sins on the cross, so why not sin? I mean, he'll pay for them, right? He's already paid for them. So I can sin without restraint. I can sin without repentance because God's grace will cover my sins all the time. License is anything goes, anytime, anywhere, any place. And the Bible utterly rejects that thinking. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 1, Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, you are under grace. So Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. You understand the difference? 
Because you're free from the law, your relationship with God is not based on a set of do's and don'ts, doesn't mean you can take your freedom and sin because you have experienced grace. Liberty is what we're talking about. Christian liberty is not legalism on one side, nor license on the other side. It doesn't seek a right relationship with God through rule keeping, but it also refuses to indulge in sin just because it's no longer a slave to the law. Liberty is constrained, not by law on the outside, but by love on the inside. Your Christian liberty is constrained not by law on the outside. I got to do all these rules or God won't like me. It's constrained by love on the inside. Love wants to do what is right in God's sight. Love wants to please God. Love is what sets you free from sin, but love is also what constrains you to do what is right. I'm going to give you an example of liberty, law, license, and love by way of dogs. There are three kinds of dogs in the world. You may have one of these dogs at your house. The first kind of dogs, there are dogs that have law, but no liberty. And you know them because when they go on a walk with their master, they're on a leash with a chain around their neck. These dogs, their internal nature wants to run free, but the external restraint of the chain restrains them, right? They're controlled by the law of the leash. This dog is not free. This dog is frustrated because the chain is always telling them no. Second kind of dog. There are dogs with liberty but no law. This is called license. They have no chains, no leashes, no fences, no limitations, and no training. This dog is free to roam anywhere, anytime, without restraints, and mark their territory at will. You have dogs like this in your neighborhood. You know them because they leave evidence on your front lawn. A dog without restraint is headed for the pound for predators being hit by cars or 22s, malnourishment, probably an early death. So a dog with no law and lots of license leads to short-term pleasure but long-term pain. Then there are dogs, the third kind of dog, who love their masters. They go on walks with their masters without any leash or any external restraints whatsoever. However, this dog obeys their master's voice and always comes back to their master when called. This dog is regulated by the law of liberty. The dog's liberty is controlled by love for their master. Happy dog, happy master. That makes sense? Are you a little clear now? You can have law without liberty. You can have, you can have license. And then you can have liberty that's constrained by love. And that's what Paul's talking about, our relationship with God. Paul says here, don't let your liberty be used as a base of operations for sin. Because liberty in Christ is not licensed to sin. You've all heard the saying, Free speech does not give you the right to yell fire in a crowded theater. You've heard that? Your ability to free speak is constrained by your love and the context you happen to be in. So we've been set free from our slavery to sin. Not to serve our own selfish lust, but Paul says to serve each other in love. To serve, of course, means to perform work for the benefit of another. We are not enslaved by the law, but we are enslaved by mutual love for each other. Liberty in Christ is the freedom to do what is right in God's sight, motivated by love, not by rules. Because relationships based on rules don't last. For those of you that think rules-based relationship is a good thing, I've got a challenge for you. For those of you that are married, try this experiment. Try posting a list of rules in the kitchen or in the shop or garage for your spouse to obey. <laughs> if you think a relationship based on rules is a good thing and it works for God and you, try it in your home. Right? 
you know, you make a list, have dinner ready by X, clean up your mess in the garage by Y, mow the grass, fix that broken light, and you can make the list, whatever you want. However, if you love your spouse, you'll probably do these things anyway, right? Because you want to please the one you love. If you love someone, you will serve them. If you don't want to serve someone, you don't love them. That's just reality. Would you agree? Say yes. Some of you are looking at me in shock. Yeah, rules-based relationships don't last. So Paul tells them, now look, this legalistic stuff you got, it's really not good because it's the opposite of love. He says, you legalists, you're not loving each other. He uses these words, you're biting and devouring each other. It's a picture of wild animals that are fighting with each other. Because legalism, law-keeping, always produces self-righteous pride. I'm keeping this law. I read the Bible, you know, six hours a day. And I don't drink anything but lukewarm water. We didn't even drink ice water at our house. We don't watch any television. You, know, you can make the list of rules, you know, that says you're more spiritual than somebody else. God is not interested in that set of rules, by the way. License, no rules at all, is always self-centered. Love is other-centered. Love is always about others, never about self. So Paul says, look, if legalism and license misuse Christian liberty, what's the solution? Verse 16. This single verse you probably could memorize. And it will take you the rest of your life because it is the key to the Christian life. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Here's the principle. When we trust and obey the spirit's direction every day, he gives us supernatural power to overcome the sin in our life. When we trust and obey the Spirit's direction every day, He gives us supernatural power to overcome the sin in our life. Now, Paul begins this verse with a command, walk by the Spirit. And he ends it with a promise, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, he, when he's talking about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the third member of the Trinity, God Himself. Someone has said that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten God. I think that's probably true. So the key to the, to the whole Christian life is spirit-controlled living. And Paul uses the word walk. Walk is a metaphor for daily living. So when you're walking with the Spirit, he says, that the, the verb tense is here is continual walking. It's not stop and start. It's not walk, sit, walk, sleep, walk. It's keep on walking. Keep on walking with the Spirit continually walk with the Spirit. It means habitually. It means a daily routine. And it says to keep on walking with the Holy Spirit. That means to keep in step. Keep in step with God's Spirit. It's a military term. That means you're advancing together in a line toward a military objective. You ever seen soldiers march in line, moving toward a military objective? That's what this is. It's an organized term. It says, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if you are walking with the Spirit, if you're walking with anybody, you have to walk in the same direction, right? Pretty tough to walk with somebody if you're headed in a different direction. Which means when you're walking with the Spirit, you're depending on His direction and His guidance and not yours. When God turns right, you turn right. When God turns left... You turn left? You're just saying, just wondering, right? When he stops, you stop. When he starts, you start. Now, that's not how most of us walk with the Lord. Most of us go to the Lord and say, I got my plan. It's a good one. You would like it. Here it is. Rubber stamp it. Make it happen, right? God, and when we pray, what are we saying? Most of our prayers are, God, 
bless this plan that I have presented to you and supernaturally make this puppy work because I know what's best for me, right? That's how most of our prayers are. Most of our prayers are quite self-centered, and I'm the head of that line. You ever walked with somebody who had shorter legs than you or longer legs than you? Marin is telling me always, slow down. Slow down. And it's frustrating for her and it's frustrating for me. Right? And when you have a little child, you know, you take really short steps. Or I see some parents, the kid's got to do three to one, four to one, five to one to kind of keep up at that point. So walking with the Spirit means we're walking in the same direction. It means we're walking at the same pace. We're not racing ahead. We're not lagging behind. And it also means we're walking toward the same destination. You can't walk with somebody who's headed toward a different destination. Now, God's destination for your life is clear. We talked about it last week. God's destination for your life is real simple. I'm going to separate you from sin so I can shape you like Christ. Right? Separate you from sin, shape you like Christ. That's God's goal for your life. So the destination of the Holy Spirit's walk with you on earth is real simple. He's moving you toward Christ-likeness. Everything in your life is separate you from sin, shape you like Christ. Write it down. Don't look at me like I'm, you're looking at me like... Wow, he said it three times. He must really mean this stuff. Yeah, I do, right? So you know the destination the Spirit's taking you. And I can see some of you going, I don't know, this separating me from sin, man. That like Christ stuff, you know, maybe, maybe I'll kind of just lag behind the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And we look at this because we say, becoming like Jesus, I can't do that. I mean, that's impossible in my own strength. And of course, that's why Paul says, you walk by the Spirit, not just with the Spirit. You depend on the Spirit's power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and not our own power. Because if God calls you to become like Jesus, then He has the capacity and the commitment and the supernatural power to make you like Jesus. So the question is, okay, how do you walk by the Spirit? How do babies learn to walk? They don't get a blueprint out in the high chair and say, hmm, got to put the left foot forward, shift the weight a little bit to the right foot. You know how a baby learns to walk? They learn to walk first by lifting up their head, right? And then they roll over on the bed. And that's when you as a parent get really paranoid because if they can roll, they can move when your back is turned. And then they sit up. And then they crawl. And then they stand up, and they wobble, and they fall down, and they stand up. And then they start to walk, and they hang on to furniture, right? Or they hang on to your hand as they shift the weight. We learn to walk by the Spirit the same way a baby learns to walk. One step at a time. And we fall down, and we get back up, and we fall down, and we get back up. So we walk by the Spirit, first of all, by learning what the Spirit says to us. You want to know what God is saying to you? Go to the 11 o'clock service, listen to Pastor Brian. He gave you a whole message on Psalm 119, why we should read and study God's Word. God talks to us primarily through His Word. If you want to know what he says, he wrote it down in English. You can read it. And if you can't read, you can turn a tape on and you can listen to it in your car. And you can be exposed to the mind of God. You can find out what God says. And the Lord will communicate with you through Bible study and prayer. I know this is so basic. You go, Brad, this is basic. Uh-huh. So is walking. You just need to do it and practice it. So we cannot know what God says unless we study God's word diligently and prayerfully. Colossians 3.16. Paul says, let the word of God dwell in you. You know what that means? 
Feast on God's word. Gorge yourself on God's word. You can't eat too much of God's word. It's superfood nutrition. Indulge yourself in God's word. But see, the word of God should control our thinking and then it'll control our acting. Because we cannot obey what we do not know. Once you know, then you can obey it. So as we prayerfully study God's word, the Holy Spirit opens our mind to understand what he's saying and what we should do about it. How many of you ever read something in scripture you didn't understand? You know what the next step is? Praying. Lord, I don't understand this. Open my mind. Show me what it is you want me to learn from this. I don't get it. My brain does not put in two and two together. And you know something? You come back in six months and you will read that and it will make perfect sense. And you say, I don't know where that came from. Of course you know where that came from. When you're struggling with something and you're praying, Lord, I don't know what to do about this. What, what do you recommend? And the verse comes to mind. That's the Holy Spirit reminding you what the Word says, right? Those answers to prayer, that's the Holy Spirit moving in your life. This week, interesting experience, Thursday was the sixth anniversary of our son Caleb's home going, last uh, November 15th. So Mary and I pray every morning, Lord, what do you want us to do today? How do you want us to live? Show us what you want us to do. So that morning I go to work. 10 o'clock in the morning, my partner says, I got a client that needs to talk to you. He comes down the hall and he says, do you know so-and-so? I say, yeah. He says, uh, their son was killed on Monday. And I prayed, Lord, we pray all the time, use whatever experience you give us to bring glory to yourself. So I call this client up, their 24-year-old son was killed in a car accident, and their only son. And they said, um, thanks for calling because you understand. So God, the Holy Spirit, took an experience six years ago that happened to us and use that to minister to somebody who is going through a like experience. And you will have the Holy Spirit walking in your life like that in ways that you will not understand unless you're open. See, we have credibility with them because we've lost a son to death. I have no credibility with somebody who's been divorced. I've never been divorced. If you've been divorced, you have credibility with someone who's going through that experience. If you're an alcoholic, you have credibility with someone who's an alcoholic. If you got cancer and you're a survivor, you have credibility with that person. And God, the Holy Spirit, wants to take those experiences that you've had and minister the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ through that. So you look at your brokenness and your health issues. And if you've been through bankruptcy and God brought you through that and someone comes to you and goes, I'm having financial troubles, you can speak with authority and they will hear because you have the scar tissue. Do you understand that? So those circumstances that we look and go, man, that's really painful. What's good about my kid being in jail? Because there are other people that need to hear from someone whose kid's been in jail who is living in the power of the Holy Spirit in circumstances they don't understand. Does that make sense? So when we look at these experiences the Lord lets us experience, He has purpose in reaching other people through those. And that's part of walking by the Spirit. The Lord will arrange your day and bring people into your life. And if you're walking with the Spirit, you will understand that God has purpose in that. So every morning, what you say is, Lord, this day is yours. I'm yours. You have bought me. You have redeemed me. I surrender my schedule to you. I surrender my life to you. I surrender this day to you. Show me, lead me, guide me today. Give me your power. Show me what you want me to do. Every appointment that comes into your life, every phone call that comes into your life, every circumstance that comes into your life, all is led and arranged by the Holy Spirit. That's walking with the Spirit. So Paul says, <clears throat> why do we need to walk with the Spirit? Why do we need that power and authority and direction of God himself and the Holy Spirit? And in verse 17, he says, because we are at war with an enemy who is inside us. And that enemy is called the flesh. Verse 17, it says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. 
The flesh word here, the Greek, it means sarx, S-A-R-X. That's the Greek. Sometimes they're talking about just a physical body. Sometimes they're talking about human effort. You know, I depend on my own effort to conquer sin. Have you tried that? Tried to conquer sin through your own effort? Doesn't work very well, right? The flesh is weak and sinful and helpless. Most of the time in the New Testament, when they are talking, when the Bible's talking about the flesh, they're talking about our unredeemed nature. They're talking about our fallenness, our sinful um, part of ourselves that have not been redeemed. Our old nature that we inherited from Adam. We were born with this, the old self. And Paul says, without the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I was a slave to the old self. I was a slave to the flesh. I was a slave to the old nature, Romans 7.15. Paul is so frustrated in this chapter, he says, for that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would not, what I, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 17. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, my flesh. So this, this term flesh, he's talking about the old sin nature. And of course, without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, we're slaves to that old nature. We sin even when we don't want to. However, when we receive Christ as Savior, we have the Holy Spirit. We have a new nature. We have a new life. Paul writes that a couple chapters ago, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been what? Crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The old I died with Christ. Before his conversion, St. Augustine lived a life of extreme sexual debauchery. Sometime after his conversion, he was walking and passed by a prostitute with whom he had been intimate. This could be awkward. Sing. As he walked past her, she cried out, Augustine, it is I. Yes, I know, he replied, but it is no longer I. Because Christ had come and lived him, inside him, he was a new man with a new nature. 2 Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things has come. So when you come to Christ, you have a new birth, right? You are born again. Jesus said, be born again. But as John MacArthur says, the problem is you have a new nature, Christ's nature, living in unredeemed flesh, which has committed the sin. And both these natures have desires, right? Paul says the, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So you've got warfare inside you. Your flesh wants to sin. And you're going to live with that desire until you go to heaven. And the spirit in you wants to pull you toward holiness and separate us from sin. So your flesh wants to sin. The spirit wants to separate you from sin. You ever sense that struggle? You ever sense that warfare in your life? This warfare cannot be compromised. Every moment we either choose to obey the sinful desires of the flesh or we choose to obey God and serve others out of love and the warfare doesn't go away and it doesn't get easier as you get older. You know what happens as we get older? We get more committed to comfort. I don't want to fight anymore. And we get self-centered as we age. I'm sorry, I love you, but as we age, we become more self-centered. That fight has to be fought, or we will become self-centered old people, and we will cease to be useful for the king. We need to be serving each other out of love. And Paul now is going to say, if you listen to the flesh, what happens? If you listen to the spirit, what happens? If you choose to obey the sinful desires of your flesh, here's what your life looks like. If you choose to obey the holy desires of the spirit, this is what your life looked like. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is your old sin nature. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, that means fightings, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger. Know anybody like that? Disputes, dissensions, factions, political parties, anybody? Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the principle. Don't be deceived. Those who habitually practice sin without repentance will not get into heaven. Don't be deceived. Those who habitually practice sin without repentance will not get into heaven. So there's kind of four groups of sins that Paul lists here. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. I know some of you are going, whew, I only got three on that list. I'm doing pretty good, you know. There's 16 of them and I got three. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. By the way, none of them are good, just in case. A little arsenic is not good, even a small amount, right? So there's sexual sins, there's sin of idolatry, sins of interpersonal relationship, and then there's the sin of drunkenness. So all of these sins are, were very commonly practiced in the Roman Empire. They were accepted. That's kind of normal, right? And all of these sins are commonly practiced in 21st century America, right? There's nothing new here. This is the sin nature. And Paul says, if you practice these things, that doesn't mean I stumble. This means I habitually practice these behaviors and I have no guilt, no repentance, no remorse. Sin has ceased to bother me. Maybe it never bothered me at all because I don't have the Holy Spirit in my life. One of the things that we need to be very clear with people is before you came to Christ, you were a slave to sin, right? You were going to hell, but there was no conflict. You weren't fighting against sin. You just did it, right? If it feels good, do it. If the ten, there, was no, there was no resisting temptation. We just gave into it. When we become a Christian... We still have the old sin nature, but now we have the Holy Spirit in our life, and the Holy Spirit's committed to separating us from sin. Now we've got conflict, internal conflict between the new nature and the old nature. And we now have conflict with people that we used to sin with and enjoy it. Yes? And now we don't like to sin anymore because sin gives us grief. It gives us problems. And our old friends don't understand. How come you don't like to do blah, blah, blah like we used to do? Well, I have this new nature. I have God, the Holy Spirit, living in me, and He wants to separate me from sin, and I really want to be like Jesus. And they go, no comprende. I mean, there is no comprehension without the Holy Spirit. They do not understand. And that's part of the conflict that we are called to love people who do not understand us. Love people who think we're crazy from their standpoint you are. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the insight. They're lost. And they need love. And they need Jesus. Paul says, if you can sin with impunity, if you can sin without conscience or guilt and no repentance, no desire to turn from sin, then you don't belong to Jesus. Because a habitual life of sin, repentance-free sin, is an indication that the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside you in the first place. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, verse 9. Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So everyone who comes to Christ gets the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Here's what's convicting. You have all the power of God himself to resist temptation and say no to sin. Nancy Reagan popularized, just say no to drugs. And I used to smile at that because I said, man, if it were just that simple, just say no. Well, when you're addicted to stuff, just saying no is not that easy. But when you have God, the Holy Spirit living in you, you now have the power to just say no. Now, whether you choose to or not is up to you, but you've got the power to say no to that old sin nature and choose not to sin. 
By the way, sinning is not an indication of a lack of salvation. We all stumble. We're all going to sin. But as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit wants us to sin less and less and less and cause us to behave like Jesus more and more and more. So this is a journey we're on. It's not that we're not going to fall off the path from time to time, but Christians get back on the path because they repent and they come back. A couple months ago, we were in the life of David. David ran off the track a lot, but he always came back. He always repented and came back to the Lord at that point. I have a four-word theology. No change, no Jesus. Over time, there will be change if Jesus is in the life. Over time. And it's not that people won't fall back. They will. But if sin bothers them and they repent and they come back, they belong. They're family. And I don't care if they have repented or not repented, you pray for them. You love them. You battle heaven's gates with prayer because Jesus loves them. So now, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, Paul's going to say, the fruit of the Spirit is... And he gives us nine descriptors, and we could spend months just on these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sounds just like you guys. 100%. I, I know why I love this class. You got all nine virtues. The truth is, you do. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. By the way, before I get to the principle, when he says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Every time you resist temptation and you say no, you're putting the flesh to death. Anytime a temptation comes along and you want to let them have it and you bite your tongue instead of unloading the boat on them, that's crucifying the flesh. You are warring with the flesh and you are saying no to what your old nature wants to do. Yes? That's a daily decision. Here's the principle. As we surrender our will to him, the Holy Spirit produces godly character and conduct in our lives. As we surrender our will to him, the Holy Spirit produces godly character and conduct to life. Now, what, what's really represented here is a visible um, picture of Jesus Christ in a human life. And these nine virtues, they're, they're not one. I, I pick one or two. They're all together like a cluster of grapes, right, on a vine. And you don't go and say, hmm, I need to be more patient. Let's pray for patience. Let's work on patience. Let's try and glue some of that patience into my life. It's produce. It's the result of having the Spirit in your life. Fruit always represents excess life. Fruit always represents excess life. When you grow a garden or you have a tree and that tree has fruit, that fruit represents excess life because a plant under extreme stress won't produce fruit. A plant under extreme stress puts all of its energy into staying alive. There's no excess life to produce fruit. So when you see fruit, you got a healthy plant. Fruit is not manufactured. Fruit is not assembled. Fruit is not bolted together. Fruit is grown from the inside out. Fruit is an external manifestation of an interior reality. What you see on the outside represents what's going on on the inside because a peach tree always produces apricots, right? Peach tree produces peaches, yeah. So over time, a Christian will always exhibit spiritual fruit that reveals that there's life inside, the life of Jesus Christ. When you see the fruit of the Spirit, you say, the Spirit must be in the life because I see visible evidence of that, right? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So when you see fruit on a tree, you realize I've got a healthy tree. When you see spiritual fruit in the life, you understand that God, the Holy Spirit, lives in that life. And God always wants to grow more fruit. He wants to create more character like Jesus. Those nine virtues, that's the life of Christ. Those are the virtues of Jesus Christ. That's how he lived. So the fruit of the Spirit is evidence that you belong to Jesus. It's evidence you're going to heaven. And the Lord wants to continue to grow more and more and more fruit. That's why sometimes he prunes us, cuts off things that are getting in the way of fruit bearing. And we go, I really like that branch, but it wasn't producing any fruit. Okay, 20 hours a week watching that news channel, probably not the best use of time. Not judging you, any stretch, you know. So let's summarize. And then we'll ask Paul, uh, Paul, yeah, we'll ask Tom. Been saying a lot about Paul. Number one, God gave us liberty from the law, not as a license to sin. You are never free to sin. You are free as an opportunity to serve others out of love. Number two, when we trust and obey the Spirit's direction in our life, every day, He gives us supernatural power to overcome the sin in our lives. Trying to fight sin in your life on your own strength is an exercise of frustration. It doesn't work. Number three, don't be deceived. Those who habitually practice sin without repentance will not get into heaven. And lastly, as we surrender our will to Him. And by the way, that's not done once. It's not done once a day. It's done moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. I've gotten some phone calls where I didn't want to surrender my will. I just wanted to unload the boat on them. That's when you surrender. You say, Lord, what do you want me to say? As we surrender our will to Him, the Holy Spirit produces godly character and conduct in our lives. I think we have enough to work on for the next 167 hours. Sam, I do love you. Now that you know... Do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.